Hello and welcome to a specially festive edition of Lost in Science. This week, uh, people who've listened to us uh, for some time may have heard us do a what we used to do on Halloween, which was a Lost in Science Fiction special where we would talk about science fiction and if there's any truth in any of the science fiction that we see. And, you know, we do talk about that on the show as well. Uh, But coming into Christmas, we missed out doing our Lost in Science Fiction episode. So Claire has suggested that we do a Lost in Science Fictionist episode (laughs) I mean, Stu, the name just rolls off the tongue. Lost in Science Fictionist. I mean, <laughs> never has there been an easier word to say. Never, never in the hi- history of Fictionist. <laughs> um, so we are going to be talking, and also Chris is with us as well. Hi, Hi. Chris. Hello. I'm just letting you two go dig your own cards. <laughs> Mix our own metaphors. Mix um, our own eggnoggy metaphors. That's right. We are going to be talking about science fiction-y themes. And there is, look, there's a whole bunch of sci-fi films coming out. Usually is around uh, Christmas time. Um, and this year is no exception. And some of them have been held off for ages. I know um, a lot of people were waiting for Dune to come out since... Sometime last year, I think, was the original release date for that one. But what uh, what are you going to be talking about, Claire? Oh, well, I feel like you might have stolen my thunder a bit there, Stu. I am, in fact, going to be talking about Dune because, Stu, I was one of those people so bitterly disappointed by the fact that, um, I mean, 2020 was a write-off for most of us, but... Oh, then they pushed back Dune and it was like the final straw. I was like a toddler on the ground, um, screaming and crying and banging my feet. Hopefully not banging your feet too hard because that's a bit of a problem in (laughs) Dune, isn't it? It is a bit of a problem in Dune. Yes, the thumpers. I mean, it can be a problem. It can be an opportunity depending on where you are. In the on the planet and who you are on the planet. Um, I am, though, going to be talking about some of the wildlife of Dune, one particular endemic um, or local species, um, and, yeah, giving us a bit of an overview of, you know, whether the story checks out, whether the, that particular type of animal can actually exist. Oh, cool. Interplanetary zoology. Mm-hmm. Exobiology, is that what they call it when you're yeah. at alien... Xenobiology or astrobiology? All sorts of names. And Chris, yeah. what are you going to be talking about? Well, recently, Stu, there was uh, a tweet also on the, on the Twitters. Um, Matthew Buckley goes by the name Physics Matt said, in theoretical physics, there are at least four distinct multiverses. There are the extra dimensions. There are quantum many worlds. There are space times beyond the inflationary patch. And then there is the one where all the different Spider-Men live. <gasps> is because... it Spider-Men or Spider's-Men? Wow. <laughs> I think it's, it's Spider-Men. I mean, if you think about the... Anyway. Or Spider-Mans. I think it's Spider-Forms. Like, it's, you know, it's more than just men. And it's more than just people, right? I mean, spiders are spiders, I guess, but you don't have like a spider spider. I don't know. We're getting off traffic here. What we're talking about is um, 
Spider-Verse, the, the Spider-Man multiverse um, in animated and live action forms. So this is a new movie. Um, it's, I think, I believe it's, it's just coming out now. Um, I haven't seen it, so there'll be no spoilers in this story beyond what's in the trailer. But basically what you can tell from the trailer is that it embraces the multiverse. It seems like all the previous Spider-Man movies made by Sony Pictures with different actors all exist in different universes to the current Marvel universe. So yeah, you know, I want to look at that with multiverses. They're very hot right now in comics, movie and TV, but do they stack up against physics theories? And is there a universe somewhere in which you yourself might be portrayed by Tobey Maguire? (laughs) <laughs> hopefully better than he was betraying spider-man in spider-man 3 Ooh, but, sing. Ooh. But, uh, and i will also be um well i'm going to be traveling back in time but also back to the future uh i don't know if you have seen this but there is a new matrix movie coming out yeah which uh seems well it's you know creating its own buzz i'm, I'm not sure how many people were desperate for a a new Matrix movie after almost 20 years of the the trilogy being finished. But I am going to be looking at The Matrix again. Luckily, I haven't seen it, so I can't spoiler it for anyone. Uh, Any spoilers are purely coincidental and no correspondence will be entered into. Um, But I will be talking about The Matrix and some of the ideas behind The Matrix. The Matrix is, in a lot of ways, uh, a lot of first year philosophy uh, concepts going in there but also there are physicists and other scientists who have suggested the idea that we may be living in a simulation and how would we know if we were so uh, I'll be sort of delving into that you can uh, blue pill out of that anytime you like well and you don't make just things are really getting tenser around here that was a <laughs> physics joke by the way that was a uh... no no the, the physicists know what I'm on about. Great. Well, I hope they stay tuned all the way through to the end of the show. Let's get on with it. It is Lost in Science Fictionmas. You know, I don't know if that name's going to stick, but how can we go past one of the most epic science fiction books of all time, which of course has been made into a new film by uh, French-Canadian director Denis Villeneuve. Um, I am, of course, talking about the long-awaited movie of the year, Frank Herbert's Dune. Dune. Are you dudes Dune heads? I don't know if there's an actual name for fans of Dune, but Dune heads works well. Sandworms, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Sandworms, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Look, I've I've read I've read Dune and I've read a couple of the sequels. There's also a bunch of prequels and there's you know there's a lot of there's thick a lot in the Dune universe to mm. read. But um, yeah, I'm aware of the paperbacks. I just know that they have these big kind of cylindrical things on the front of them often. Oh, yes. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I came pretty late to Dune. I only read it uh, last year, but um, I loved it. Would recommend the book. Highly recommend. Um, I was very excited um, to hear that the movie was coming out and then very disappointed when I found out that it was being postponed. 
You could have always you could have always gone back to the David Lynch nineteen eighty four oh. film version. Oh, with, I did, and I yeah, okay. um, didn't. Um, it it didn't live up to the expectations in my mind. There's one line in it that sticks in my head, and and I always repeat it. Uh, this one we call Mordib. <laughs> Mordib. I just love I just love the delivery of it. It's amazing. <laughs> Well, for those of us who aren't Dune heads out there, um, Chris included, um, the story, you know, no spoilers, but it is, you know, a coming-of-age hero's journey. It's set in the far future and follows a teenager, Paul Atreides, um, as he and his family head to the desert planet of Arrakis, also known as Dune, with the intention to mine for the Emperor, the most valuable thing in the universe, which is space. I don't know if it's like five spice or what. It's just incredibly uh, valuable and it makes everyone's eyes blue. Um, anyway, as, as these things go on Arrakis or Dune, it's got some pretty wild life that live there and they play a big part in the story. Um, me being the animal lover I am, obviously this is what um, has attracted me to telling this the Lost in Science fictionist story this week to talk a little bit about the hypothetical biology of one of the more terrifying and awe-inspiring creatures to grace our screens in recent times. I am, of course, talking about the giant sandworms that live in the sand of Arrakis and are protectors of the spice. I have haven't seen Dune or read the books, <laughs> but I have seen the movie Tremors, where there are graboids that come out of the ground, that little kind of sandwormy things that grab people. Is that similar to that? Um, how big are the graboids? Oh, you know. The, because look, these the, the sandworms are really big. Like, how big is a the sandworm? Gra- the graboids are, like, sharky size. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, this yeah. is a lot bigger than a sharky size. So they're described in the book as being around 400 metres long. For, yeah, I mean, they're real big worms. Maybe around like, I'm, I'm thinking probably about 15 metres like in diameter, like their mouth would be about sort of, or maybe even more. There is there is a scene where they're like, they eat vehicles and things like mm, that. They're not, they do. They're not small, yeah. not small animals. Yeah. And considering, I guess, the worms that we've got on Earth, um, I know, Chris, you did a story about the Gippsland earthworm Maybe that was last year, maybe the year before. Do you remember that? Anyway, these dune worms, they're a lot bigger than the Gippsland earthworm. Um, So, you know, if if they lived, hypothetically, if they lived, you know, what would that look like? And and for comparison, I guess, you know, the largest dinosaur was believed to be around 35 to 40 metres. Sorry, the blue whale. How big's the blue whale? Yeah, the blue whale um, is around 30 to 40 metres as well. So the sandworms of Dune are about 10 times that size. So making them what would be the biggest animals ever. And theoretically, it's possible for an animal to exist and live that large. But there are a few sort of biomechanical problems that make it unlikely. All right. So the first is oxygen. So worms don't have lungs, unfortunately. They breathe through their exterior, from their slimy exterior. Um, And this is fine if you're an earthworm and you're small. But as um, volume increases with size, it's a real challenge to be able to take up that oxygen from your skin 
and then be able to distribute it enough to the tissues and your organs um, as you get a lot bigger. So, you know, that's your first problem. Um, also, the um, if the movie is anything to go by, their skin is like, it's not exactly like a slimy little worm skin. It's quite tough because, you know, they, they're in sand and they live in sand. Mm. So I guess, you know, maybe we can imagine that they've evolved a separate superior respiratory system um, to provide active transport of oxygen, maybe. That'd be cool. And they live but underground, the, though, where there's a lot of oxygen either, you'd imagine. Yeah, totally. Um, and the other issue, or oh, sorry, just to go back to that, they do come up to the surface sometimes. And, and when there's thumping happening, as Stu suggested earlier. Um, the other issue from a biomechanical point of view is, you know, as objects double in size, roughly speaking, their mass increases by a lot more than double. Um, by a factor of around eight. So um, if you're looking at a 400 meter worm and how much that's going to weigh, um, I think a very accurate estimate of that, of, of that uh, you know, mass is, is a heck ton. It is a lot. It is quite, quite a lot. It is a heck ton. I was just going to ask, um, you're talking about the weight of the worm and we're talking about an alien planet is the mass and the weight the same thing on Arrakis as it would oh. be on an Earth-like planet? I see, because I was thinking that the equivalent thing that I know of in science fiction movies is the giant kind of worm thing that's in The Empire Strikes Back that lives on an asteroid, where yeah. you'd imagine that the, there would be even less gravity. Mm. Arrakis has, like, more than one moon, so would that... No... No. It okay. might. It might. So it might be a larger planet than Earth, which means it would have greater <laughs> gravity. Greater I don't gravity? know. Hmm. Mm. Maybe we need to go back to the books on that one. Um, but anyone who's seen the movie or read the books, so you you probably know that the sandworms they resemble roundworms, which are nematodes, and they're pretty much invertebrates. So. Um, yeah, thinking about, I guess, the mass of these worms um, and, uh, you know, the hecton of mass that these worms have, um, it's going to be hard for these worms to get around without the support of a skeletal system. Um, it would be an absolute effort to move that much weight. So, look, I don't know, maybe there's something in the blue spice, the blue eye spice that makes it easier for them to support their weight or move quicker. I don't know, something that we don't have on our planet. But um, in terms of biomechanics, this one feels like a bit of a tall order. Truly, I think there's something quite exciting about seeing something like the incredibly humble earthworm or nematode platformed into the you know science fiction halls of fame as something so awe-inspiring, uh, something that in the book is worshipped, feared, and um, spoiler alert ridden <laughs> so um power to the worm for this lost in science fictionist this year across australia on the community radio network you're listening to lost in science 
All right, so yes, um, I am talking about the multiverse of Spider-Man movies, also known as the Spider-Verse, and asking, is there a reality in which you're portrayed by Tobey Maguire, who is, of course, the actor who played Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man. Oops, that was a spoiler, wasn't it? Well, uh, not if you've ever seen any of the movies, really. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he played he played Spider-Man the first three movies from 2002 to 2007. Some people deny this is the third movie, I believe, Stu. It wasn't the greatest outing for, for Spidey, I've got to say. Mm. But, you know, some people like it, so... Exactly. Each to it, their own. It exists as its own universe, as I indicated. Um, and also, as I said in the introduction, there are a number of different types of multiverse in theoretical physics. I'm not going to go through all of them to try to analyse the Spider-Verse against the different kind of theoretical multiverses. I'm just going to try and simplify it in kind of broad categories here. Um, one of the ones you're probably most familiar with is the quantum many worlds theory, in which the, the timeline branches at every possibility. Have you heard of this? Mm. This is where every electron colliding with every other electron could potentially cause a whole other universe to branch depending on which way the electron bounces off and stuff like that. Yeah, essentially. It's basically done to explain how we transition from the quantum world, where things can be in multiple states at once, and to the more familiar classical world where we only see things in <clears throat> in one state at a time. Look, I'm going to try and explain how this works briefly. Um, you've heard of Schrodinger's cat, right? Yeah. Good old Schrodinger's cat does a lot of hair breathing, that cat. It's uh, the best quantum example that, that we have. Just to refresh your memory, it's a cat in a box. Uh, it's been put in the box with um, some radioactive material. The idea is the material decays. Then that releases some poison gas that will kill the cat. Um, the radioactive decay is a quantum event. So essentially the cat's life or death is controlled by this quantum event that has a 50-50 chance of happening within a given time frame. So the idea is that like said, the cat's life and death is controlled by this quantum event. So when it's locked in the box, before you open the box, it is both alive and dead at the same time. A what we call a superposition of the both states existing, um, overlapping kind of thing. But when you open the box, you only find the cat either alive or dead. People, so people wonder how you get from this kind of indeterminate state to this determined state. And the many worlds interpretation is a way of explaining that by saying that the two possibilities of the cat being alive and dead when you open the box, are all still both equally real. So mm. what you had inside the box kind of expands to the rest of the universe. It's it's a little bit different because inside the box is meant to be a quantum superposition where the different possibilities kind of overlap, they can interact, you can interfere with each other. This is how we get like wave-like behavior of particles because the different superpositions interfere. But when it spreads out to the messy macroscopic world outside the box, the two possibilities kind of get... Um, separated more by the, the noise of the outside world, and so they become completely separate and they can never interact. So they're still equally real, but they're completely unable to interact. So they're basically in two separate universes, even though they essentially they occupy the same physical space. But you can't experience both possibilities at the same time. But then you have to expand this because there's, there's never going to be only two quantum possibilities at any given time. No, is there? this is why people are kind of uncomfortable with it. Because, yeah, there's going to be multiple possibilities for every quantum event. Everything that affects the world will create multiple possibilities. And there's just obviously so many of these things happening all the time. Like you said, Stu, any kind of particles collide there can be new branchings off um it's just the mind boggles it's impossible to comprehend how big this is but um yeah so apart from that kind of slight um thing that ruins your head it is a simplistic understanding of what happens and it's kind of be hard to understand why it wouldn't be true so a lot of people believe that it must be true 
Um, look, the other thing to note about this is that these are random quantum events we're talking about. Like the, the cat in the box, you have no control over whether it's alive or dead. You're just observing it. So these are not choices you make. You know, splitting of the timelines in science fiction is often depicted as a choice. But these are actually just the random events. It's the whole quantum nature of it that causes it. Um, the only exception would be if you went, if you chose to go back in time, that would force a new timeline. So that's a choice you could make that would definitely create a new branching timeline. But we're keeping time travel out of it for the moment. So look, whether this matches up to the Spider-Verse, I guess the question is, are there quantum events in your past that um, if they happened in some different way, would have led to you being portrayed by Tobey Maguire? Um, <laughs> I, I think that sounds extremely unlikely myself. So uh, look, we can look at another possibility. The other possibility is that you have um, universes that are separated um, by space, as distance in space, or by other space-like dimensions. Um, this is something that can arise in inflationary theory, where you have uh, an infinite number of bubble universes popping up, but it can also just simply happen if our universe itself is infinite. Because then just by random chance, you go far enough away, you would find another version of Earth. Just from the combinations, the limited combinations of atoms you can make, then you would find, in infinite universe, you would find multiple versions of Earth. Uh, again, it relies on mind-boggling numbers to achieve this. So there you'd have to ask yourself whether there is a possible different combination of particles, perhaps the initial conditions that were set up on this other Earth that could have led to Tobey Maguire playing you on one of these other Earths. And again, impossible to say, but I think that possibility is more likely than the Many Worlds version. So I'm going to say the Spider-Verse must be more like that kind of infinite universe or extra-dimensional universe. Look, um, I look. I do think that in this case, the um, yeah, the infinite universe or the yeah, the extra universe kind of um, scenario is more likely than many worlds one. I mean, obviously, it's very difficult to get to one of these distant universes. They could be um, mind-boggling distance away. Um, not just say branching timelines in the same space, but again, that seems more feasible for this Tobey Maguire scenario we're examining. Yeah, look, I said I wouldn't examine the other kinds of multiverse that are, that are hypothesized. There is one other one I can think of that may be able to explain this, and this is the idea of alternative kind of computer simulations of universes, but I don't feel qualified to talk about that. I may have to hand that one to, uh, to Stu to discuss. traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. Way back at the end of last century, a film came out that changed the look of action films and, well, probably other films as well. Uh, not to mention influencing other areas of design. If you didn't like the look of uh, patent black PVC, uh, oh, it was yeah. a hard time. It was a hard time to be cool, uh, or yeah, maybe or it wasn't. Pleather, pleather was you know long yeah. black pleather jackets. Yeah, all the coolest people were wearing long black pleather jackets. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what they thought. Um, but remember the the bullet time effect, so called bullet <gasps> time effect. Um, yes. was a bit of a watershed moment in film history, even though The Matrix did not start that. that was the, the origin of that was actually a Gap commercial, the Gap clothing company, which is a US company, 
had the same thing on their ads um, in much earlier than the film came out. But look, that's you know that's so, uh, special effects tend to come in waves, and often they get tried out in ads because people forget about them quickly. Um, the film also, we shouldn't forget, gave rise to the term red pill, which yeah. has twisted itself into a whole new meaning among conspiracists and cuboids around the world who think they can they can see through the Matrix, man. There's also in the Matrix, there's a big plot hole uh, regarding conservation of energy. Um, and if you haven't seen the Matrix, humans are being kept alive to harvest energy from their brain activity or some outrageous uh, concept. Um, it's it's really it you know it's it's against all of the laws of uh, conservation of energy. Newton would be rolling in his fictionist grave, I'm sure. Um, I just took it that the machines to... were just being arbitrarily cruel, basically. I mean, you could take it that way, and you know there is there is a def you know, an explanation given in the film, but it doesn't really stack up in why they would do this, except just to be mean to people. What is I think most interesting about the film is that it brought a very basic question of philosophy to the movie going public and the character of Morpheus who is uh, played by Lawrence Fishburne in the original film has a big long speech to Neo who's played by Keanu Reeves how do we know that what we experience as the real world is real and he you know he talks about it in you know it's electrical signals in your brain how can you actually prove that that is a real thing outside of your own head. And it's a fundamental question in metaphysics and philosophy. The idea that reality is just electrical impulses in our brain mean they can be manipulated by mm. outside forces, potentially. That's that's a difficult issue to, to resolve. And many religions around the world suggest that the world we experience is just an illusion. This has been written down many times in many different languages in different parts of the world, that you know the reality of the universe is somehow hidden from our senses in one way or another and I guess this is a little bit like what uh, what Chris was talking about in the multiverse there may be some factual basis that every reality has an alternate version of it this is the basis of the idea in the matrix it's in also the, the um, philosopher film. Freddie Mercury I believe said is this real life or is this just fantasy that's true that's true great well-known philosopher one of the most prolific writers of philosophy in the 20th century <laughs> In the case of the film The Matrix, the deception is deliberate and humans are largely unaware of the unreality of their lives. And as I've said, it's not a new idea. This is something that's been sort of brought up over and over again uh, in the history of, of thought, really. Uh, but one possibly new concept, I guess, which has grown in reputation since the beginning of the 21st century uh, and, and certainly since the, uh, since the film brought it into the popular uh, culture is the idea that uh, a sufficiently advanced computer model could give the appearance of a cohesive universe and any component of that model would be unable to identify the model it was part of. So that the, the each individual human and, and organism in the world could be 
given a sufficiently powerful computer programmed and it would believe it was real. And there's there's a great uh, line in uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where Arthur Dent is being told that he'll just have his brain replaced with a computer brain and nobody would know the difference. And he says, but I would know the difference. And the people who are going to replace his brain with a computer brain say, no, you wouldn't. You'd be programmed not to. And that's, mm. you know, that's kind of the that's kind of the idea is if, if you're programmed by someone else, how are you possibly going to know that you're being programmed? This simulation is well beyond the computing power that we have at the moment. We, we couldn't possibly design a, a computer simulation of the entire universe. We don't really have that ability at, the, at this point in time. But as in the Matrix, uh, if we're a simulation, we may be based in a time period lagging behind what we might call the base reality. Whoever might be running this simulation that we're all living in might be far in the future from what we would consider now and the reality of now being 2021. So they might well have incredible amounts of computing power that would allow them to simulate this environment. So the simulation could be running far into what we would consider the future and computing advances quite quickly. Uh, but there are still upper limits to the speed and information storage which you would need to run a complete entire universe in a simulation. And that brings up another question of whether our universe might be a massively simplified version of the base reality universe. If they can run something on their vastly superior futuristic supercomputers, it might be similar to the way our video or computer games work now. The environments are much simplified versions of what the real universe is actually <laughs> like see yeah so the thing that i was wondering was if you were in a simulation would you yourself be able to run a universe simulation or is that like pushing the computing power too far or maybe there's some optimization of the program but it, it kind of would make sense that you could tell you're in a simulation if you were not able to run a universe simulation from within your reality and well you just said oh we're not able to run such a simulation ourselves that made me think ah interesting well that that may be a piece of evidence that we have but you know this, i've seen some pretty impressive computer simulations but nothing that actually makes me go oh that looks real you know it, in the end it always looks a bit clunky and and artificial but then again maybe if we if we're in a simulation and the real universe is much more complex we would look clunky and simple to those people running the simulation, potentially. The philosophical implications of this are probably endless. It gives us something to, to talk about at the pub, I suppose. But of course, scientists are always having a crack at trying to figure out ways we might be able to detect telltale design features of existing in a universal simulation. So a group of physicists published a number of possible experiments which might reveal a simulation framework in 2017 in the International Journal of Quantum Foundations. They called their paper on testing the simulation theory, where they present a whole range of experiments that we could possibly do to look for basically the, the programming design of the system that we exist in, which is kind of, I guess, in a way, what quantum physicists do anyway, is looking for the fundamental underlying patterns of, of existence themselves so they're not really outside of their field in their in that uh in that endeavor i guess i should point out though that at least one philosopher has warned against testing whether we're in a simulation because if someone has designed a simulation the idea that purpose of the simulation might be to test 
whether the simulation can work out it's a simulation. And if someone in the simulation works out it's a simulation, they might just turn it off. That's one sort of extreme example of why, hey, maybe we shouldn't be testing this simulation, but it seems like a, a bit of a dead end to me. I would rather, you know, if you've got an idea of whether we can test something, we might as well test it as long as nobody gets hurt. Well, one argument for saying that it must be true pretty much is that if there are, is it possible to simulate a universe, then the number of simulated universes must vastly outnumber the number of real universes. So just by chance, you're more likely to be in the simulation than in oh, the real geez. one. That is if it is a possibility. And as yeah. you said, the fact that we can't do it means that we don't know if it's even possible. Mm. So at this point, the probabilities are pretty pretty out there. Look, I, I just wanted to, to finish up by, by saying that um, whether or not we are in a, in a simulated universe and we're being fooled by some external force or entity or power, I was always led to believe it was a bad idea to take pills from strangers, especially without finding out what's in them. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.